Despite the countless number of books on prayer that have been written, C.S. Lewis observed that he had never come across one that was of any use to him. Ironically, he made this observation in a book he wrote about prayer. Lewis said that he had seen many books of prayers, but when it came to those written about prayer, the writers usually made the wrong assumptions about the reader. Or at least, they made the wrong assumption about the kind of reader Lewis was. The author assumes that you will want to be chatting in the kitchen when you ought to be in your cell, he observes. Our temptation is to be in our studies when we ought to be chatting in the kitchen. I've often felt something similar. Books about prayer never seem to fit my situation. They either assume that I don't want to pray or that I don't know how. Neither is really the case. My problem lies elsewhere. I've been praying for as long as I've been a Christian, longer even. I've never felt that my problem with prayer was a matter of mechanics. Prayer never seemed like rocket science to me. You just talk to God. When I became a pastor, I became a praying professional. That is to say, prayer was part of my job. I prayed publicly as the church worshipped. I opened board meetings with prayer. I led the church's weekly prayer meeting. I prayed for the congregation in my study, and I prayed with those who came to me for counsel. Over time, I discovered that most people are like me. We pray, sometimes frequently, but there's something about the experience that leaves us feeling uncomfortable and vaguely dissatisfied. We aren't sure why. It seems to me that the primary problem most of us have with prayer has nothing to do with motivation or method. Our problem is relational. We don't like the way God treats us. We feel like we're doing all the talking. It's hard to carry on a conversation with someone who never talks back to you. After a while, a person begins to feel that the other party in the conversation is disinterested. Even when we do get an answer to our requests, they rarely seem to take the form that we anticipate. God's disposition is unreadable and his paths oblique. The main reason for this is because prayer is a conversation that moves primarily in one direction. It moves from the believer who prays to the God who hears. God's silence does not mean that he is unresponsive. Good listeners are often silent when they are paying attention. It is true that in ordinary conversation, silence can also mean other things. When we try to talk to others, people may respond with the silence of disinterest, rejection, or even complete absence. But where prayer is concerned, the fundamental assumption of faith is that we have God's attention. If we ask whether God is hard of hearing, Scripture's emphatic answer is no. 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 say, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of Him. The one guarantee we have in prayer is that God always hears us. But there's more to this hearing than awareness of our requests. The key to understanding John's bold and frequently misunderstood promise 
is to note that to hear in this sense means something more than to take notice of something. To hear, as John uses the term, is to grasp the full implications of what we say. God knows both our desire and our true need. He also knows how our request fits into his plan. John's condition that our requests must be according to his will is not God's liability clause designed to protect his reputation if we find the answers to our prayers disappointing. This is a condition that implies that we have a responsibility to consider the nature of our requests before we make them. Do we have a warrant to ask such a thing of God? Is it something for which he has told us to pray? How does the request fit with a larger understanding of God's general will and plan for our lives? What is our motive in asking? God's hearing of our prayers includes an assessment of everything that lies behind them. We misinterpret God's silence if it leads us to think that we are the initiators in prayer and that God stands by impassively as we wait to see what he will do for us. The scriptures paint a very different picture. They show that God moved in our direction first. The first word is God's word, Eugene Peterson explains. Prayer is a human word and is never the first word, never the primary word, never the initiating and shaping word, simply because we are never first, never primary. For this reason, Peterson describes prayer as answering speech. Consequently, our prayers are a conversational answer to what God has already said. Prayer is a response to an invitation extended to us through Jesus Christ to express our needs and desires directly to God. The fact that God does not answer in kind when we speak to him in prayer does not mean that God has nothing to say. As the hymn writer declares, What more can he say than to you he hath said? You who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. Scripture is an essential companion to prayer, not only because it teaches us how to pray, but because it shows us where the conversation began. The Bible tells us what God has already said. By reading it carefully, we develop a way of thinking about prayer. We begin to understand the one to whom we are speaking. It is easy to accuse God of being unresponsive to our prayers because we cannot hear his voice. But the truth is, we are the ones who are disengaged. God has spoken first, but we do not take his words into account. We are deeply interested in getting what we want when we pray, but not nearly as concerned about God's wishes. I'm not saying that we have never read the Bible or that we have no interest in God, only that we tend to be single-minded. We don't bother to consider God's point of view. We're waiting for him to respond to us, when all the while, he has been waiting for us. We're hoping that God will say something new without bothering to orient our prayers to what he has already said. Would we pray differently if we believed that God's silence meant that he was truly listening? It might help if we thought of prayer as communion instead of conversation. The essence of communion is shared experience. We usually interpret God's silence as absence or disinterest. 
But in true conversation, listening is interaction as much as speech. Indeed, genuine listening may be even more an exchange than words, because to truly listen, we must enter into someone's experience. We've all had conversations where the other party did not really hear what we were saying. Their silence was merely a pause before speaking. We ourselves have been guilty of this. Such conversations are not conversations at all, but merely an exchange of sounds. Silent listening is essential to genuine conversation. It's also a common attribute of the experience of communion. Every happy couple knows that the joy of conversation is not the chatter, but the pleasure of exchanged presence. The Christian idea of communion is rooted in the biblical concept of koinonia, a Greek word that means fellowship or sharing. Sometimes koinonia speaks of our experience with God, and at other times of our experience with other believers. There is a connection between these two. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9, the Apostle Paul reminded the Corinthians that God had called them into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Such language denotes a special kind of relationship. It is a fellowship or a union with Jesus Christ. The Church celebrates this relationship when it observes the Lord's Supper, a rite that we often call communion. But the spiritual communion Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 1.9 is something more. Fellowship with Christ is an abiding union with our Savior. Those who have been called by God and have trusted in Christ are themselves in Christ Jesus. This union is what Jesus prayed for when he asked that all those who believe may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. John 17, 21. He went on to ask, May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. We often view Jesus' words as a prayer for church unity, and unity is partly in view. But Jesus was asking for much more. Our mistake has been to see Jesus' words as a statement of aspiration, interpreted this way, Jesus' words are more of a wish than a prayer. If desire were all Jesus meant, he might as well have said, Father, I hope that they will be one. Indeed, this is exactly how we usually hear this text preached in the church. The emphasis is not on what God has done in response to Jesus' prayer, but on what we are supposed to do, if it is ever going to be a reality. Instead of a prayer addressed to the Father, we have changed it into a sermon preached to the church. But the maybe of verse 21 is not a maybe. It is a let it be that echoes the Father's declarations at creation. Just as God said, let there be light, and there was light, Jesus prayed, let them be one in us and in one another. What does this have to do with our prayers? It means that communion is a state before it is an experience. Communion is still a fact even when we do not sense its reality. God hears us when we pray, even when the silence leaves us feeling like we are talking to an empty sky. God is present when we pray, even when we do not sense his presence. Sometimes when we pray, we act as if we need to attract God's attention. We feel like a person on the ground waving their hands at a plane passing high overhead, 
hoping that someone up there will see them. But God does not have to come down from on high to take note of us, nor do we need to arrest his attention. Although we often talk of coming into God's presence, the truth is that we are already there. Whenever we pray, and even when we are not praying, we are always in the Father and the Son. God cannot be any closer than he already is, even if we were in heaven.